here's the deal. Um, I, if you, if you guys know me at all, you know I was, uh, was a musician, still am a musician for most of my life. I've written, I don't know, maybe a maybe 100 songs, maybe 150 songs. I don't even know. I've lost track. Most of them uh, pretty bad, you know? Some of them pretty good. Um, a couple of them uh, have gotten some really, really amazing accolades uh, as a songwriter, you know, the thing that you just wish, you know, somebody you really admire has said, man, that's a really good song. And what I learned about songwriting is, man, everyone is different. Some songs I've written in 10 minutes, and, and they went like from idea to execution almost immediately. Some songs, it took literally multiple years to write them, and they went all over the place. They may have started out as hard rock songs and ended up as like the quietest, mellowest song. You never really know where a song is going to take you. And, and I transfer a lot of that approach to actually our time together on Sunday. Um, every seven days, I look at it as sort of I'm writing a new song. I don't know if that ever speaks to you guys, but this is the way that I view my preparation. And this, this talk has taken about two or three twists and turns. Even last night, I sat down to kind of do the final tweaking, and it's like, oh my gosh, another twist, another turn. And the beauty about this is I get to watch it unfold at the same time as you guys do. The, the challenge of it is uh, I don't exactly know uh, what this thing looks like. So we're going to experience this together. And I think there's a certain beauty about it, but I'm also going to ask for a little grace too. Is that cool? Can I ask for that? Awesome. Um, so as Dan said, this series we're calling The Grind, and we have these different, uh, different challenges that life throws at us. Last week, it was the grind of uncertainty. This week, it's the grind of, of difficult people. Next couple weeks is going to be insignificance and insecurity. But it's not just a series about everyday life. It's actually a series that looks at everyday life as it intersects with prayer, specifically prayer through the Psalms. Now, when I grew up, I, I first understood the Psalms as songs. That's the way they were presented to me. These are like you know, songs that uh, King David wrote or that ancient Israel wrote. But as I studied more and learned more, I, I came to understand that the, the Psalms are actually better understood, in my opinion, as prayers, as written prayers of God's people through, the, through time. And if you read the Psalms, you'll find that, man, every possible experience of a human being is contained in the Psalms. Great joy great disappointment, uh, uncertainty, insignificance, and, and an awful lot of difficult people, actually. If you read all the Psalms, there's 150 of them. They're right in the center of your Bible. And over and over again, actually, this comes up uh, of, of David or some other writer of the Psalms dealing with a difficult person. And as I like to think about this, this isn't just a talk about uh, difficult people. I just called it also, this is the talk about those people. <laughs> because I think we can say difficult people, but we also kind of know if I say, oh, you know those people, right? And we all go, oh, yeah, I know those people. So we're going to be talking about those people uh, for a while. And, and here's the deal. Um, um, those people, I think, can come about in a couple of different ways. They emerge in, in a couple of different ways. I remember uh, when I was young, 
Um, I was really tall and really thin and not that athletic, and I was quiet and I was introvert, which pretty much translate that during middle school, I, was, I had a target painted on me as most tall, thin, quiet, musical uh, guys do. So I had, a, I had a few bullies in my life, right? And one was named Ricky. And uh, Ricky was short, and he had that, maybe that short complex. I don't know what was going on in Ricky's life, but he was my tormentor, man. Rode my bus home, had to walk home with him for part, of, and it was just, you never knew what you were going to get. And I even had, like, you could have you written, they did write movies about this, some of these uh, circumstances. I had the thing where, like, I had a hat, favorite baseball hat. Ricky lived in my neighborhood. And one day, you know, he kind of reached up and he had some, some of his buddies around and he, he ripped the cap off my head, put it on his head. And he's like, oh, look, you know, look what I found. I got a new hat. And I'm like, that's my hat. And he's like, nope, it's my hat. I found it. You know, and I convinced him somehow. Ricky was my difficult person. And I don't know how he got to be that way. Seems like maybe he was just born that way. And some difficult people seem like they're just born that way, right? But then what I've also come to realize is that Sometimes people aren't difficult until something changes in circumstances and you realize that there's some kind of sea change in, in the environment and this person that you thought was not so difficult all of a sudden is very, very difficult. And one of the other reasons I want to ask for grace and one of the reasons I'm actually a little bit nervous today is because I feel like the past you know, three, four months of our country, uh, this has really happened, where we have relationships around us, and, and we thought our relationships were built around something, and then you know, we go through a, a fairly traumatic, I'm just going to be honest, a fairly traumatic uh, uh, election. And even in this community, we see people that all of a sudden, like there's difficulties in our relationships. So I think one of the things that I've experienced as I was prepping for today is like, man, this is really, really pertinent for our community. And, and I'm going to be honest, uh, difficult people challenge me because I'm kind of conflict averse. I'm working through this. I don't like conflict. Um, and so I can see that somehow in my life, I have made uh, some of the decisions I've made, I, I make in order to try and hopefully avoid difficult people, you know, because first difficult people, they start off and they're kind of out there in culture and have to deal with people like Ricky and walk home with them, or you just find people and you're, they're obviously so different from you. Uh, and you're like, well, you know, I understand that you're difficult because we come from such different circumstances. But then uh, you sometimes encounter like you, you go to church, you know, or, or they're in your, or in your family and you think, well, man, we have this common experience or this common this common way of thinking, and then all of a sudden something changes and you realize, whoa, like we have this common experience, but we are expressing that experience in utterly different ways. And I was listening to a, a podcast this week and uh, this uh, lady was interviewing three Christian leaders. And, uh, and, and that's one of the first things she said that struck me, that they were all Christians, fervent leaders in their faith. And yet how they express that faith was radically different. And so even in the church, we come into a place like this, and, and there, it's shocking at first when we find that there are people who call themselves Christ followers, who are utterly serious about their faith, who are utterly serious about the discipleship process. And yet something happens in culture, and all of a sudden, 
they're a difficult person. They are those people. Maybe they come to your growth group now. And you're like, whoa, I didn't know I had those people in my growth group. Anybody know exactly what I'm talking about? Uh, they're everywhere, those people. Uh, I don't know if some of you guys might know that I'm going away um, tomorrow for an annual retreat that I do up at a monastery, uh, four days of silence and solitude. And the first time I went up there, I was, I was uh, attending a workshop, and the workshop was led by one of the monks. And it was hilarious because the monk, he had this really rich Rhode Island accent. And he was like, you know, you, he's like, essentially, you people come to this thing and you think that the monks, we just live in harmony and we sing all the time. He's like, you don't know these monks. He's like, they are really annoying sometimes. <laughs> so those people even find their ways into the most peaceful places on the planet, right? And so those people are in this room with us right now. Um, and uh, we can't just use our best instincts to, to deal with those people. Difficult people require, biblically speaking, I think they require a different way of thinking. And so I want to talk to you about what this might look like. Um, and it starts with, with Jesus, because Jesus had difficult people in his life, and some of those difficult people surprised him. If you ever read stories of Jesus's life, you know uh, who some of his arch enemies were. You know, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the scribes, right? He's always doing this intellectual battle with them. And it's obvious the battle lines are drawn. But Jesus actually had difficult people that sprang up in really uh, surprising places and I dare say probably really disappointing and hurtful places. So I wanna read you a story from Mark chapter eight. Uh, the text it reads like this. That Jesus began to tell them, and them are, are his, his followers, his disciples, his disciples. He began to tell them that the son of man, which is a word that Jesus used for himself, title, he must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. He talked about this openly with his disciples. Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. And we're going to hold there for a second. Let me tell you, let me remind us who Peter is. Peter's the first disciple Jesus calls. He is one of the closest. You know, Jesus has these um, circumferences of relationship. You know, He's got this group of disciples that might number over 100. Then he's got a closer, more intimate uh, number of disciples that are probably around 70. Then he's got this group called the 12, of which Peter's are a member of. And then he's got the three, James, John, Peter, his closest disciples. If you know the story of Jesus, you know that Jesus, his public ministry is only about three years long. But he calls Peter, and for three years, they spend probably nearly most time together, maybe every waking hour. They walk around. Jesus teaches them. They see Jesus do miracles, heal people, raise people from the dead. 
They see life change. And the three, Peter, James, and John, they get, they get the most training. They get the discussions that nobody else gets. And then Jesus says, okay, guys, let me tell you how this story ends. I gotta go to Jerusalem. And it's not gonna be pleasant. And then Peter, the guy that he poured the most time into the first he pulls Jesus aside and reprimands, which is probably not a good idea. <laughs> then Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, and then he reprimanded Peter. He said, get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not God's. And I hear in that the disappointment in Jesus. Peter, how could you miss this? And then he goes on. He calls the crowd to join his disciples and he says, look, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Just like that song that we sang. We find our life when we lay it down. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul. Peter is way off base. And Peter in this instance has gone from one of the three to a difficult person in Jesus's life. How can you be so wrong? And let me just tell you, Peter doesn't have this moment of a wake up call and then he's just, okay, I got it now, Jesus. I am in lockstep now. No, no, the disappointment does not end there. Peter goes on to sort of bumble and stumble and disappoint. And somehow it's a part of Jesus' story, and I love that when I can say, man, I've, Jesus and I share a story together. We've got a difficult person. Jesus had those people. So uh, what do we do? What do we do when we encounter them? And, and as Dan said, the psalm that we're going to be dealing with is uh, Psalm 54, so we're gonna get over there right now. And it is a really simple, very short psalm. So it, it reads this, there's an introduction for the choir director, a psalm of David. David wrote it regarding the time the Ziphites came and said to Saul, we know where David's hiding, to be accompanied by stringed instruments. Kyle, John, no, no stringed instruments. Okay, we'll just read it. Uh, come with great power, O God, and rescue me. Defend me with your might. Listen to my prayer, O God. Pay attention to my plea. So David just starts off and he just declares, uh, God, I need you. In the Hebrew, uh, it, would, it, it starts with God. God's the first word of, of, of those two verses, which reinforces that God is, where, God is where David needs his power to come from. You know, the placement of words is important. So David declares right out of the gate, God, I need your power. I need your might. God, I need you to listen to my prayer. Verse three, strangers are attacking me. Violent people are trying to kill me. They care nothing for God. These are the difficult people in, in David's life in this instance. You see, um, David was on the run from King Saul. Saul was the, was the king of Israel. Uh, and Saul basically was, began to suffer from 
paranoia, delusions, some kind of um, madness, actually. And he became convinced that David was trying to take his kingdom from him forcefully. And so Saul had this great, uh, first, uh, a beautiful relationship with David, but then Saul starts to want to kill him. And time and time again, like Saul will just pick up a spear, try to, try to kill David. David escapes and he's on the run. He's on the run. Saul's hunting him. And David goes to these people called the Ziphites. And he's like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm on the run from Saul. And, and essentially they're like, sure, okay, you know, hang out with us. And then the Ziphites turn around and they send a message to Saul. And they say, hey, we know where David is hiding. Betrayal. David is trapped and Saul's forces are, are coming after him. He's, uh, he's on the other side of a mountain. And at the last minute, somebody sends a message to King Saul saying, hey, um, the Philistines, the, the historic enemy of God's people, they're attacking somewhere else. And so Saul actually says, okay, like we need to divert our forces instead of chasing this one guy, David, and we need to go deal with this Philistine threat. But David's betrayed. And he says, look, um, strangers are attacking me. That's a referral to the Ziphites. And he says, violent people are trying to kill me. That's Saul. So David's feeling those difficult people. He's betrayed. And oh yeah, his king, who he has served loyally, wants his head on a plate. So he cries out to God. Verse four, but God is my helper. The Lord keeps me alive. And a key word in that little sentence is, is the word but. As I like to say, that's a big but. David's a skilled military guy at this point. Talented commander. And he could just, easy say, he'd just as easily say, look, my, uh, my little army, my band is my helper. They're gonna keep me alive. But he says, no, 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 no. God is my helper. The Lord keeps me alive. And this is a really crucial turn as we're gonna see. Then verse uh, five, he says, may the evil plans of my enemies be turned against them. Do as you promised God and put an end to them. So he's, he's talking about the plans of Saul and the plans of the Ziphites to turn him over. And then, he and then he ends this way. I will sacrifice a voluntary offering to you. I'll praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For you have rescued me from my troubles and helped me to triumph over my enemies. So he ends with praying and worship. And it's that simple. It's really a simple psalm of just God's, of David saying, look, I need to acknowledge what's going on here. I've been betrayed. Uh, violent people are, are after me, but God is my helper and God keeps me alive. And he draws this out in, in a really, really particular way. You see, um, it's not just the words of scripture that sometimes are messages, but it's actually the very construction of a psalm or of a passage of scripture that teaches. And let me show you what I mean. We're gonna bring up just a, a, a really quick analysis of the structure of the psalm, of Psalm 54. And it's really interesting because it's, it's structured um, in a way that, that teaches. Verse four is the center of the psalm. And there's a parallel sort of thing going on here. And what I mean is verse one and two are David's public praying and public call to God. And that parallels verses six and seven. 
Verses one and two and verse six and seven kind of match up together. It's worship, it's prayer, it's calling on God. And then verse three and verse five both deal with the plans of these people who are after them. God, I've got these plans. God, would you help me? And then if you see verse five, look, thwart the plans of my enemies, God. And at the center of it all is verse four, where that big butt is. And it tells me something about the way we deal with difficult people. And that is, we have to deal with them with God's help. Not our own. Not our own rhetorical or argumentative gifts. That God is at the center of dealing with difficult people. That God is at the center of dealing with those people. Are you feeling me? And here's the deal. Let me see if I can push you a little bit. Not only do those people uh, reside in our growth groups, not only do those people uh, exist in this room right now, but here's my second thought for you, that if you exist long enough in a community as diverse and rich as ours, we have to come to terms with the fact that sometimes we encounter difficult people and sometimes we are the difficult people. So think about that. Anytime in the past few months or past few years that you'd be like, hmm, maybe I didn't conduct myself in such a way that would bring honor to this community or honor to Jesus. Can we just all acknowledge that like sometimes those difficult people are after us and sometimes we're the difficult people. That's just part of being human. So what I want to do is actually spend the rest of our time and, and give you two thoughts uh, of first being for when you are that difficult person and then kind of reinforcing when we have to deal with the other side of that. So uh, in, in the book of Ephesians, I, I'm, I've been spending some time in Ephesians lately. There's a great chapter. The writing here is so beautiful. Chapter 4. Paul writes some words that I think are helpful for us right now. Starting in verse 17 of chapter four, Paul says this, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do. That just means the people who are not part of God's people, okay? Live no longer as the Gentiles do for they're hopelessly confused. And then he starts laying out this argument down to verse 20. All right. This isn't what you heard about Jesus. Since you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Paul's just saying, look, when you're not a part of God's people, there's one set of rules that you need to live by. But when you decide to sign on for the Jesus Project, when you sign on for the Restoration Project, the hope of the world, you have to sign on to letting yourself be changed. And Paul says here, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes. And the reason I'm skipping some of this is because I, I, I Paul goes through like a laundry list of things that need to be renewed. And let me just say this. If, if you wonder how much you need to lay on the table to be renewed, it's all of it. 
It might come at different times for different people. But when you sign on to let the Spirit of God renew your life, it's all of your life. And eventually, God may come poking around to some part of your life that you don't want him poking around in. You're like, God, I didn't think you were going to ask me to lay this on the table. And if you're, if you're open to it, God may say, remember that, remember that scripture in Mark 8 that Pastor Eric read at the beginning of February 12th where he said, if you want to save your life, you've got to lay it down. If you want to you keep your life, you lose it. All right. So then he goes down here, and this is where I really want to get Verse 29, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. We're gonna stop right there. You see, I think uh, we think of foul and abusive language as like maybe the, the seven curse words you're not allowed to say on network television. And that's part of it. Come on, right? But the word that uh, Paul uses here is the, the Greek word sapros. And it's a great word, man. Uh, it has multiple meanings. Sapros can mean literally like the smell of rotting fish. So Paul's really being evocative. Look, don't let language come out of your mouth that's just foul. And man, I spent years in rock and roll and I can, I can cuss with with the most creative. And I've had to discipline my mouth over years, okay? But, the, but he doesn't, the word does not just mean those seven bad, bad words. Sapros actually means just nothing, nothing that's, um, it means unwholesome. It means things that don't do good. In other words, Paul casts the net pretty wide here about talk. And some of us, when the circumstances switch and we have become the difficult people, if we took a step back from the words that we speak or the words that we write, and we had maybe our children read those back to us, we might say, whoa, that language does not seem very wholesome or good or positive. And Paul would say, uh-huh, that language too. And then he also says this in verse 29, and I love this. He says, uh, let everything you say be good and helpful. And the word that he uses there is uh, oik, uh, bring, that word, uh, bring that phrase, that, thanks, I'm, my Greek's a little rusty, oikodome. And uh, it's, it's a really simple word that, that puts two Greek words together. I'm gonna start with the last part first. Dome means to build up. So Paul says, look, use words that build up. But oiko, oiko is a really curious word because you know what oiko means? Oiko means community. It means a house where a family lives. And spiritually speaking, we are the family of God. So what Paul is saying here, if I can be really clear, is he says, look, don't 
use words that tear people down. Don't use phrases and things that hurt. But look at language that builds up not just you, not just the person you're talking to, but can you use your words to build the whole community of God up? And I am no English major, but I know those words that build people up, they exist. Phrases like, help me understand. I, I see where you're coming from. Tell me more. Why do you feel so strongly about this? They're not hard to come by, but we have to be willing to own up to the fact that maybe we're the difficult person right now. So that's one part of the equation. But look, the reality is we can't control other people. And we still might come, come across people who push us and we feel betrayed or we feel just shocked. So what do we do? Uh, as I was preparing for today, I, I discovered that Psalm 54 is actually uh, occasionally used as part of the Good Friday liturgy, which means Good Friday is the day that we remember the death of Jesus on, on the cross. And historically, the church has, has had readings that they read on that day for that purpose. And Psalm 54 is associated with Jesus' death on the cross. Now, why do you think that is? In Luke 23, uh, Luke is recounting um, the last moments of Jesus. And he, he writes this, uh, that two other criminals... Both were led to out to be executed with Jesus. And when they came him to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And then Jesus said, maybe you've heard this, Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. You see, at the moment where Jesus, who I would suggest to you, is dealing with some very difficult people right now, the Romans, these criminals, his disciples who have all fled, run away, betrayed, deserted him. And at the moment of death, Jesus does the same thing that David does. And he allows God to be in control of the situation. Remember verse four in Psalm 54. But you are my helper, God. You keep me alive. You will deal with this, God. And Jesus says, Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That speaks a powerful word to me about the difficult people in my life because it frees me from having to be the solution to the problem because there's a deeper power at work in the world. I'm gonna read a, a few verses to you. I know there's a lot of scripture, but man, this is just where this song led me this week. Listen to these passages from, from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.21. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. 
just as Christ suffered. He's your example. And you must follow in his steps. 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. Now who will want to harm you if you're eager to, do, eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a, what's the text say? Gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. And how about the last verse four, uh, verse one of chapter four? So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had and be ready to suffer too. You know what's most amazing about those verses to me? You know who wrote them? Peter. The same Peter that in Mark 8 pulled Jesus aside and said, no, 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 Jesus, you can't suffer. Jesus, this can't end that way. Jesus, I, I know how your story should go. Jesus, pick up the sword. Jesus, do this thing. And that same man, years later, he gets the cross. As I've said it before, people, uh, he understands and, and, and it, it just it inspires me so deeply to remember that the cross is not just a, a magic trick to get us into heaven. Peter hammers it and he says, look, Jesus modeled the cross as a way of life and you might suffer, but isn't it better to suffer for doing good? And Peter says, look, it's your pattern of living. And, and Peter, the guy that pulled Jesus aside and he couldn't see the cross and he couldn't see suffering. And finally he says, oh my gosh, I get it now. And he writes to his people who were listening to him and people he was doing ministry to. And he says, guys, 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 look, when there's difficult people in your life, your job is not to argue them into righthood. Be respectful with your words. Be sensitive. And then if all else fails, look, trust God. This is not about being a martyr. This is not about saying, look how much I can suffer for God. It is much more about saying, God is my helper. I don't need to be right. Anybody else not need to be right? If God is our helper, we don't need to be right. And here's the cool benefit. You see, look, while we have these difficult people and while circumstances keep shocking us, ah, with the people who arrive, we did not think were difficult and now they are difficult. We argue, we fight, we get angry. And you know what happens? The pendulum just swings from one way to the other. 
and we're the difficult person, then they're the difficult person, then I'm the difficult person, and it just goes on and on, and let me see how angry I can get, and let me see how much I can argue with you. And Paul's weeping, and Jesus is weeping. But the cross changes all that. The cross says, stop, stop. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And the last thought is just simply this, um, that when we trust God for justice and, and understand you can work for justice and do it respectfully. You can have discussions and do it respectfully. The words are there. Trusting God for justice and forgiving people can break the destructive cycle of fear, anger, and anxiety. I'm betting my life on it. So the questions are pretty simple ones for, for us all today. That's simply this. Do you have somebody that you need to forgive? The difficult people in your life, those people. And do you need to say within a moment, maybe you need to write this down on a fridge fold, just a name. And you need to say, God, I'm trusting you with this name. I'm trusting you not, not, not to convince them, not to give me better arguments, God, so that the next time I can wallop them. I'm trusting you, God, that you're my helper. I'm trusting you, God, that, that I can forgive and I can release myself and this person. Is there a name? And is there a person? Because, guys, if this just stays in this room, then you can fire me. This has to live outside these walls. Second question. Do you need to acknowledge where you've been difficult? Where your words have not been wholesome or helpful or built up this community, but they've built up yourself and your agenda? And do you need to go to somebody and ask forgiveness from them? The cross allows all of this. The cross says, we don't have to be angry people. We don't even have to be right people. We have to be Jesus people. And we have to trust that there is a God in heaven that is our helper. Just like David was, just like Jesus was, just like Peter, just like Paul. He is that for us. As a band plays this song, uh, I want you to sit with that. What do you need to do to respond to these words, to this challenge today? Amen. Amen.